Hey, I'm Steve Follin. Thanks for listening. This time, let's find out what it's like being freelance for composer Grant Kirkhope. When I first moved over here and I was keen to do movies, I realised I needed an agent. And I kind of thought, oh, that's going to be easy. I'll just, you know, I'll just uh, call an agent. It'll be great. They'll, they'll, they'll have heard of me. It'd be, it'd be no trouble at all. And of course, it was like nothing like that. It just didn't happen. Everyone went, who? Sorry. Every freelancer that I know has that problem of like, how do you balance it with work and life? And I think you just, you can't. There is, there is no happy medium. You have to be prepared to do whatever it takes to get the job you want. Yeah, so there's Grant, and he has created the soundtracks to video games that have sold over 30 million copies. Like, you don't even have to be a gamer to have heard of the ones he's been behind. I'm not. If you want to find links to what Grant is doing, check out beingfreelance.com. You'll also find links through to him on Twitter so you can reach out to him. Of course, at the website, there's also over 100 freelancers sharing their stories. Uh, In fact, man, that's what I love about this podcast. We go from last week with Nisha, who is in her early 20s, just starting her career, to Grant this week, who was working hard when Nisha wasn't even born. <laughs> Not to depress Grant. But it's true, isn't it? And I love that about it. From someone just starting out to someone much further down the track, and yet with so much in common and so much great stuff to share. Check out the website then, bingfreelance.com. Articles, my vlog documenting my freelance week, the newsletter to sign up for. And if you enjoy the podcast, please do hit subscribe. And I haven't asked this for a while, but if you really enjoy it, please do think about leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts because it does make a difference i tell you what can make even more of a difference simply recommending the podcast be it on twitter or in person at a meetup sharing it with other freelancers does us a huge favor and does them a favor too of course right enough wittering let's crack on and chat to freelance media composer grant kirkhope hey grant hello how you doing yeah i'm good whereabouts in the uk where are you from yeah, born in Edinburgh, but I lived most of my life in North Yorkshire, in uh, Knaresborough, which is close to Harrogate, which is close to Leeds. Ah, right. But right now, you are in sunny LA. I am indeed, yes. Yeah, sunny Southern California. It's lovely. Very right. nice today. Well, in that case, let's find out how you've got to where you are today, both career-wise and geographically, I guess, which are most likely tied together. So yeah, how did you get started being freelance? Um, so I was a staff composer for a long time. I started at a company called Rare in the UK in 1995 as a video games composer for that company. And I spent 12 years there working on lots of their, their kind of, well, quite a lot of their popular games. I was very lucky to get the kind of the big ones like uh, GoldenEye and Banjo-Kazooie and Perfect Dark and Donkey Kong and things like that. And then I shifted over to America in 2008 to work at Big Q's Games in Baltimore. And I did a game there called Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning. And then spent four years there. And then 2012, I was more or less sort of... Um, freelancing from that point onwards well okay so what year did you say you started as a staff yeah i started in 1995 as a staff composer a company called yeah rare in the uk in the midlands i mean how would you have got that is that like a case of sending in demos and things it was a massive fluke like i did uh, i played trumpet uh, all the way through school like uh, i was a classically trained trumpet player and i ended up going to the royal oncology music uh, in manchester for, to, to do a degree for four years but prior to that, when I was about 11 or 12, I started to play guitar. So I was like kind of a self-taught metal rock guitar player. And that's what I want, kind of wanted to do. So when I left university at 22, I, just, I had no interest in playing trumpet whatsoever. I just wanted to be in a metal band. So I played for 
quite a lot of different kind of bands over, over the next sort of 11 years, really. Played in some metal bands, I played in a trumpet in some rock bands and some kind of soul bands, funk bands, etc. So um, some of the bands did quite well, like Little Angels, who were quite a big UK rock band at the time. I played for them for quite a lot of years. Ended up touring with like Bon Jovi and Van Halen and people like that and doing those kind of big arena tours in, the, in Europe. Um, and then and I was also playing guitar in my own kind of metal bands that didn't do so well, playing in pubs and stuff. And I guess I was kind of on and off unemployment benefit for like at least 11 years, like 22 to 33, I'd have said, something like that. And then uh, one of the guys that I played in local bands with called Robin Beanland got a job at Rare writing music for video games. I was like, oh, that's exciting. You know, knowing that I knew got a job, right? We all just kept sound on the dole for years and years. So about a year and a half went by. So I said, you know, Greg, you've been on the dole for like 11 years, probably. Uh, don't you think it's time you got a job? I was like, well, you know, what can I do? So why don't you try to do what I'm doing, like write music for video games? I thought, uh, maybe. Like when I was at college, um, I, was, I was terrible at harmony. I failed the harmony exam. You had to pass it in the four, in the four years you were there. I failed it three years out of four. I was terrible at harmony and got, can't understand it <laughs> in composing. Not for one minute did I think I could ever compose ever. I mean, I wrote songs for the metal bands I was in, but never, ever thought I'd be a composer. So I said, oh, well, I'll have a go, you know. So he advised me to get a copy of Cubase, which is like a sequencing program a synthesizer, an, an Atari uh, ST with a mega RAM. Uh, and I set about writing tunes that I thought would be right for video games. I mean, I'd played a lot of games at the time, so I kind of knew what they sounded like, but I had no idea what I was doing, really. <laughs> and I sent five cassette tapes to Rare over the course of a year and got no reply. And out of the blue, I got a letter saying, please come for an interview. And it was like, oh. So I went down and surprise, surprise to me, especially I got the bloody job. So that was it. <laughs> so I started, there, I started there in 1995 as a composer with not really knowing what I was doing. Complete fluke. So when you were sending those tapes off, were they the only company you were sending them to? More or less. I sent, I sent a tape to maybe somebody, one of the people, perhaps, I can't remember who they were, but Rare, because I had a friend there, and because Rare were really yeah. big news, they were sort of super big news at the time. Um, they just got a, Nintendo, just, I just bought um, half the company, which is like unheard of for Nintendo to, you know, venture outside Japan. So the big news for them. And I just, I just wanted to be there because I, I had a friend there. That was basically it. So you find yourself working at that company. Presumably there were other people to learn that craft from. Clearly you were a musician, but composing for computer games you hadn't done before. No, certainly not. And the first gig I got there was like working on the, on the original, that big grey Game Boy. That was my first job to, to get somebody else's tunes to work on the Game Boy. So that's nothing like I was used to. I was used to looking at computers and MIDI files and all that kind of thing. And this was like just done in hex, which is like four numbers on a black screen. And I was like, oh my God, I can't do it. It's just far too hard. So I kind of I stumbled through that. But then at the time, Rare was working on a game called GoldenEye. It was to go with the movie. And um, the guy that was doing it at the time there uh, was busy with another game. So, you know, Grant, do you mind sort of taking over GoldenEye? I was like, yeah, are you joking? I'd love to do that. So <laughs> to get to work on, to go on GoldenEye as my first game really was like incredible. And that, I mean, that game went on, to, went on to sell 10 million copies. So it was pretty spectacular. <laughs> the first thing that I touched, not really knowing what I was doing, sold like a gazillion copies, you know. So it was, it was just amazing. The whole thing, the whole thing was, Rare was a super, super fantastic company. It was family run. It was just the best place to be. It was like, I guess it's like being in Disneyland. It was fantastic. Wow. What an opportunity. So was it 2008, you said, that you then moved to the States? Yes. I went to Baltimore then. Yeah, because like... Uh, Rare had sold themselves to Microsoft and I just didn't quite like the way it was going. Sometimes when that, you know, that kind of creative thing gets sold into a corporate environment, it doesn't work. And so I decided that it was time for me to leave. So where did you head to when you went to Baltimore? So I'd, I'd, yeah, it's a company called Big Huge Games um, who were, uh, I guess, weren't that well known at the time. And I did a few interviews with other companies and I, you know, me and the wife, the wife used to always like to sort of 
you know, go on holiday in the States. That was our favorite place to go to. So we always kind of thought, wouldn't it be great to, to live and work there at some point? You know, never thinking of managing, you know. So um, I applied for a job and I got an interview. So I went for the interview and I liked the company a lot. I liked the people. I liked the whole environment. It felt, it felt really like those kind of mad, passionate gamers that I'd kind of dealt with at Rare in, in, its, golden t- in its golden years, you know. So it kind of, I thought, oh, you know, I need, to, I need to be here. So I just um, accepted the job and moved across with the wife and kids and lived in Baltimore for four years working on that game, Kingdoms of Amalore Reckoning, which was quite a, a big seller when it came out eventually. So you would work on one game for four years? Sometimes, it depends, right? I guess it depends on, sometimes games go a bit wrong, <laughs> you have to restart them. Uh, you know, it can be a bit like that. And, but usually it's a while. And I was actually the audio director at that company, so I had a bit of, a bit of staff to look after. So I kind of audio directed the game uh, as well as writing the score. It all went quite well most of the time, um, but we were part of this huge, well, not huge, but um, uh, there's a company called 38 Studios who owned big, huge games. And they were, they were run by a, a baseball player here called Kurt Schilling, who's a very famous uh, baseball player. He was a very big gamer, but obviously didn't know a lot about managing games, but knew a lot about playing them. So he put all his money into the company, and it went well, but um, after our game came out, he just ran out of money. And even though our game sold well, the big company, 38 Studios, tanked. And so we all we just got shut down. So it was like, literally, the game came out, did well, company shut. And I was like, oh dear, <laughs> what am I going to do now? I'm in America, uh, what am I going to do? And that, so that was a bit of a, uh, a, bit of a disaster at that, that moment in time. So what did you do? Well, I was super keen to be in, in movies, right? I, wanna, I really want to write for movies. So I knew that LA had to be here really to do that. We kind of picked ourselves up and did a little bit of a zinger in the meantime, doing a Facebook game for them. Because some of the guys, the bosses that ran big, huge games formed Zynga East. And so I worked for them remotely. And that kind of kicked off my freelancing really. So I working for them, shifted across to LA and uh, crossed my fingers. <laughs> That's tried to get this freelance thing going. Wow. Basically being made redundant that made you become a freelancer yeah, the content. So Zynga, who were making, I mean, Zynga were huge. Maybe they still are, forgive me. But, um, you know, like making things like Farmville and stuff at the time, right? Yeah, they were huge at the time. Yeah, tons of money. So they're, yeah. they're a big success story. So again, a great notch on a, on a freelancer CV. You, you've, you've built up a lot here. But I mean, that must have, or maybe it wasn't, but was that a big change from, you know, having been in a company in the UK for many years and then like another four in the States? suddenly you're not in a company, you're not in your home country. Like, that's quite a change. Yeah, it's pretty scary, <laughs> I think, at the time. I think I, sometimes I don't, know, I don't know how we did it, really. I, like, I look back at it and go, you know, how did we do that? Um, but I think that, you know, I guess I'm pretty well known as a, a video games composer. I've been doing it for, like, 22 years. And so it just seemed to all fall into place by, like, my, my life seems to be, like, one big, huge, happy accident. You know, and it just, everything just sort of fell into place. Like I did, I did the Zynga thing. And then I had a friend who was working in Sega in Australia. He said, you know, Grant, you're out of work now, but we've got a game here. You could do this if you like. They were doing um, Mickey Mouse, Cash of Illusion. And they said, you know, we need a composer. Why don't you do this? I was like, great. So that kind of got me a bit more work to kind of get myself sort of, you know, jolling along as it was. And then it just sort of snowballed, really. I think, I don't know whether... Because I was quite well known as a composer, people th- couldn't get to me because I was part of a company. The minute I was outside the company, maybe I got people thought we can get hold of Grant now. I'm not sure I'm that famous um, at all, by any means. I just think, you know, 
just from being around for all that, all those years, you know, I keep getting called this kind of Grant Kirkup veteran composer, which I don't think means I'm old and I've been around a long time, you know, <laughs> basically. So I think I, it just kind of fell into place. And my wife, who was a teacher in the UK, um, she taught to A-level in the UK. When we moved over here, she didn't work because, you know, she, we were on a visa at the start. Then we got a green card pretty quick when she could work. So when our kids got a bit older, like she, she said, oh, well, you know, I wouldn't mind doing a bit of teaching because I'm a bit bored. So I started doing a little bit of um, like supply teaching where they'd, you know, they'd call her up and she'd go in on a day-to-day basis. And then she found she'd missed it. She said, well, I'd really like to go back full time. So I said, well, you know, fair enough. So we kind of switched roles. I was at home, you know, doing the groceries and uh, getting the kids from school and she was back full time. So it kind of, we just switched roles overnight. It was like literally, it was completely perfect. I don't know why. It just, I, I kind of feel that. I've had a a fortunate set of disasters that have kind of got me to where I am. (laughs) I love the fact that it went from a happy accident to a fortunate set of disasters. Well, yeah, it's it's a bit like that. It's a good name for a film. Somebody needs to make a note. (laughs) So so when you made that transition, you were working in a company. Were you like going into an office, you know, and working there, like creating music in an office environment? Yeah, yeah, nine till five. And, you know, I do. And when I was at Rare back in the UK, it was, you know, it was a great regime to get into because a lot of times people or composers or writers often think I need to get wait for inspiration, sit in a darkened room, wait for the hand of the Lord to hand you a song t- type thing. Like I, I've never been like that because I was a kind of a staff composer. I got used to, you know, starting at nine and then I started writing music at nine o'clock in the morning. And I finished at five at night. I just kept it just, that's the way it was for 12 years for me. Well, more than that. Um, so I think that um, it's a great habit to get into. Um, and that's that. That's what I did. That's how it worked. You just sat there and, you know, you were a composer as anybody else was a programmer or an artist or whatever. You started at nine and finished at five. Yeah. So now that you're freelance, do you go into places or are you working remotely, as you say, like looking after the kids and then sitting down with your routine? Yeah, I'm just at home. Like I just, you know, we get up earlier because the kids start school early in America, like eight. Um, so, um, yeah, we get up at 6.30, get the kids to school, and I start writing, I guess, about quarter to nine, nine o'clock. And I'll, I'll probably write till about two in the afternoon. And then I'm not really good in the afternoon. I kind of have a bit of a gap, and then I can start again maybe later on, like six or seven, if I have to, if I'm busy. So, yeah, I mean, I really prefer, you know, the whole freelance thing for me, is, it's, it's been a way better for my mental health, <laughs> probably. Um, it's different in as much as you probably work on multiple projects at any one time. So you might be doing two or three things at once, which can be stressful, but then you might have a gap where you do nothing. So it's that, you know, in, you, you have that, oh my God, it's all going to go wrong. And then it's like, I'm bored. It's, it's no, there's no happy medium where you sit on a game for a while and just like, you know, chip away at it. It's not like that anymore. Yeah. It's interesting that you said, you know, I'm not very good in the afternoon. Like that's sort of like, coming to realize that that's something i realized with myself it's like you know two o'clock oh man i can't do this anymore yeah did you fight that for a while as somebody who had been going you know doing a nine till five or i'm intrigued about that self-realization i guess yeah i I, I get to i think i got to the point where i realized i just wasn't very good at it that in the afternoons it was like it was hard work and sometimes when i was at rare because in the early days um, audio guys like me, you were given an entire game to do. She did all the sound effects and all the music. That was the way it worked back then. So I, I could work in the morning on music because it was like something I had to really think about or feel, feel inspired to do. In the afternoon, I could do sound effects, which is quite a bit more workmanlike. You can find a sample, find, you know, a dog barking, you know, you know get the sample sounding good, put it in the game, you know, etc. You could do it all like that. So it was, it was different for me back then. But as, as a pure just composer, like I've been now for quite a lot of years, that's the time when I kind of thought, yeah, in the afternoons, it's not very easy for me. So, and you know, and also you, you kind of feel guilty that you're not working because I'm still in that phase of thinking, because I've still been working as a staff composer longer than I did as a freelancer. You still feel bad about not doing something in the afternoon. 
but I've realised it's I'm wasting my time really. I should just not do it and do yeah. something else. So, and usually I'll go and do the shopping, get the kids, come back, you know, and then I can do it and start again. From a business point of view, when you were working in the companies, I'm presuming somebody else was taking, you know, charge of that kind of thing and the contracts and deadlines and so on and so forth. How have you adjusted to that as a freelancer? Well, in a company, I was no different to anybody else. I was a nine-to-five, pay-as-you-earn, you know, monthly wage, like everybody else in the UK is. It was just like that. Uh, the, Rare did pay royalties back then, so that was quite special. Um, so the team would get a royalty on the a percentage royalty on the, on, the, on the amount of money the game made, so that, that could be quite a lot of money at some points. So switching to freelance... When I first moved over here and I was keen to do movies, I realised I needed an agent. So, and I kind of thought, oh, that's going to be easy. I'll just, you know, I'll just uh, call an agent. It'll be great. They'll, they'll, have, they'll have heard of me. It'd be, it'd be no trouble at all. And of course, it was like nothing like that. It just didn't happen. Everyone went, who? Sorry. No one even talked to me really for the first, I don't know, year probably. I emailed people a million times and you know, I'd finally gone down the list to the lowest of the lowest of the lowest agent. And even they turned me down. And I was like, oh my God, you know, who's going to, who am I going to get to be my agent, you know? There's a company called Gorfain Sports who are a really prestigious Hollywood, you know, composer boutique agency. And they represent like John Williams and Michael Giacchino and Brian Tyler and all the big Hollywood AAA list guys are on Gorfain Sports. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to be on Gorfain Sports, you know, not, with no idea at all that you know, it, was, it was probably not going to happen. So I kind of mailed, um, there's my agent there called Cheryl Tiano and uh, Kevin Korn. And I kind of mailed Cheryl Tiano umpteen times without a reply. And during my course of like going down the lowest of the agents, I, I finally met someone that was going to take me on. And um, it was like literally my last ditch attempt to get an agent. And this guy said, yeah, I represent you. Yeah, don't worry, it's all. And, and I had, a, had a, like a, a lunchtime coffee meeting with him. And I got home. And when I got home, I got an email. And it just, just said on it, Corn Office, K-O-R-N Office. And I was like, what's this? I nearly deleted it. I think it was some kind of spam thing. And I noticed the Gorfain Sports <laughs> thing at the bottom. I was like, hang on a minute, what's this? <laughs> Uh, so uh, Kevin Korn, who was a, is a young guy, who's a, a, you know one of the young agents at, at Gorfin Sports. I think Cheryl Tiana must have read of one of my mails at last after sending like 150 million emails to her, and she said, "Kevin, you know you should look at this guy." And so uh, I got a meeting with Kevin, and lo and behold, they took me on. No one was more surprised than me. So having Gorfin Sports as my agent is fantastic because they're like super high powered, um, and they take care of all that kind of billing, fighting over contracts nonsense that I don't have to do. So they do all that for me. And I give them a 10% of, my, of, what, of the, what I make, you know, so that's how it works. So, um, yeah, I never really, I only really did maybe one contract on my own prior to getting to going with Gorfain Sports. Wow. And will they, like, go out and find your work or do they step in at the point where somebody's asked you to do something? A bit of both, really. So they do send me things to pitch for regularly. So, I, I mean, I've done a lot of these pitches and got none of them. Uh, I guess that's not their fault, that's mine, <laughs> for not being good enough. Uh, so, you know, I, I've learned here, so living in LA, it's a very hard thing. There's 150 million composers here that are all great. You just have to keep trying and trying and trying to get on the get on the bandwagon kind of thing. But also, most of the work that I get comes directly to me, and then I get them to sort the contract out, and they'll fight over the details and what I'm going to get paid, et cetera, mm. et cetera, and the kind of the, the legal issues of it all. Because they're, they're super experienced. I've done it for, for umpteen years, and... You know, the deal with John Williams contracts with Star Wars, for God's sake. So I'm sure mine's pretty simple compared to that, you know. Uh, <laughs> you know, so, um, yes, so that, that's how it works with them, yeah. And when you say pitching for work, would that include creating samples for, for free? Like, Oh, yeah, oh, it's all for free, yeah. So, like, for instance, I must have done, like, 10 Disney pitches maybe this year um, for different cartoons and bits and pieces. So Disney will usually send you three or four little animations if it's a cartoon, like of little scenes. 
Um, and they're often hand-drawn and just like animated, so it's very early stages. And you, I guess, with lots of other composers, you, you score the scene, send it in, hope for the best. I've uh, also done some DreamWorks bits and pieces, some Nickelodeon bits and pieces. I haven't got any of them yet. <laughs> I'm still trying. So that's the way it works. So, you know, it, is a, it can be, you know, I mean, one of the Disney things I got sent was five minutes long. I'd spend an entire weekend working on this five-minute piece of music, which is quite a lot of music to write in a weekend, um, to pitch for this thing that you don't get paid for. Um, it's just the way it mm. works. And I mean, I, you know, I don't mind doing it. I think, you know, if you, you know, you've got to be in it to win it, right? So you have to be prepared to do whatever it takes to get the job you want. Yeah. And how do you deal with those gaps? You mentioned, you know, like sometimes there's just gaps. How do you cope with them? I know I've not had a lot of gaps, actually. I must admit, since I started, I've been super busy. And last year was like ridiculous. Uh, when I used to work at Rare, I kind of thought I was infallible. And I used to just, I could just, nothing ever taxed me really. I could always get on with it and not have a problem. But last year I did uh, a game called Ukulele, a game called Drop Zone, a Ghostbusters game. I did a, this big game called Super Mario, uh, Mario Rabbids Kingdom Battle. It's a gigantic thing. And I did a movie too last year. So I had five projects on the go last year. And I, I kind of had it all kind of scheduled out in the year so it would all just kind of nicely fit together. But like as usual, things get put back. And so everything got crunched towards the back of the year. I was like, oh my God, I'm not going to make it. And it's the first time I kind of thought, actually, I'm not infallible. Just like everybody else, I'm normal. So that was slightly panicky. But I literally, on the Mario game, which, you know, I mean... For a Western, I think I'm the first Western composer to ever get to work up with Mario. Like it's always been an in-house Nintendo thing. So for me to get to work with Mario was a huge honor, and you know I was so lucky to get that project. Um, I literally worked on that game probably every day for two years, and no exaggeration, I wrote music for that every day for two years, and talked to the dev team as well as doing my other my other games that I was doing at the time and the movie thing. So like last year, I think from February maybe January 2016 until June. This year, I worked every day, seven days a week. There was no let up for that entire period of time. So it was super, super busy. But I've been off this year from, not off, but I've been less busy from June until now. But I'm about to start again, actually, on some projects. So the little gap I've had has been really welcome. And I haven't sort of panicked about not having any work because I think you can do that. But I've felt all right about this so far, so it's been all right. How long was that period, did you just say, that you were working seven days a week? From about January 2016 until June this year, 2017. Uh, I didn't stop. I was seven days a week. My wife was like, she just never saw me. I was how, I mean, how do you cope with that? Both yourself, but also because um, you mentioned kids as well uh, and your wife as, as a family. I don't know, really. Um, and I sometimes wonder how I write the music because like, it's, a, it's a huge amount of music. Like I did two and a half hours of music for the Mario game. An hour for Drop Zone, an hour, for, uh, maybe forty-five minutes for for Grab uh, for Ghostbusters, maybe an hour for Ukulele, maybe forty-five minutes for the movie thing. Like you know, that's a lot of music in a year. Like you know, when you used to be a staff <laughs> composer, you might be in a game for a few years. You might not write that much for that. You might write an hour for the for the game in a, in a couple of years. I'm I'm doing it in a few months now. You have to be able to write quickly and to a high quality as a media composer. There's no room for that. Let's wait for inspiration to drop through the roof. It, it can't work like that. You have to sit down and get on with it. Um, and I guess that's why that training of being a staff composer was so valuable to me last year, because I, could, I can just sit down and get on with it. So it's, you know, it's, you know, I think that as a freelancer, every freelancer that I know has that problem of like, how do you balance it with work and life? And I think you just, you can't, there is, there is no happy medium. As a freelancer, you take on as much work as you think you can possibly get through because you want to, you're worried about the next project not turning up, right? So you're always going to be in that boat where someone's obviously something, you're just going to say you're going to do it because you don't know what's going to happen the year after, the year after that. So 
you know, I don't know. I just, I don't think that is balancer, but I think it is a thing where you take, you just do the work that's there and hope for the best that some more turns up when you finish it. Have there been projects that come along where you've said no, like where you think I simply can't do that or, you, you know, because Mario could be around the corner. Who knows? Like, what if you took on something else? I'm just wondering how, how you manage the, the yes and the no's. I haven't done any no's yet, funny enough. I've actually, it's all worked out all right so far. But I guess because last year sort of taught me a little lesson, I might be doing some no's again, I guess, not, you know, soonish or maybe, I don't know, like in the future. I think I've learned now that I'm just, I'm not that machine that can just continually write. I mean, I can do it, but it's, it's, it's very taxing. So maybe in the future, as I'm getting a bit older, I'm going to, I'm going to start to say, yeah, you know what? I just don't think I can do that. But, you know, it's just, it's just, as a freelance is hard, right? It's a hard thing to do because you've always got to balance that thing about thinking about, am I going to get any more work? You never know. I think composers can be in vogue and out vogue very quickly. I'm lucky that I've, the projects that I've worked on, you know, over the years have all been pretty successful. So, you know, I do tend to have something to kind of fall back on and people know who I am in the kind of games industry. So that helps. But there's, Thousands of great composers out there, way better than I am. I think just by virtue of the fact I've been around a long time, people might ask me because they've heard of me, you know, or they liked a game I did when they were 10 years old or something like that, something like that, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you balance that stuff. I just think that maybe after last year's thing, I might think twice about taking on too much. But last year, I didn't think I took on too much, right? I thought I had it all balanced out. But because people's deadlines got put back, they all got put back to the same time, more or less, the end of the year, which made it hard for me. And also I had to go and fit in a recording session with an orchestra for Mario in Prague, literally this time last year. So I had to get to Prague, record the orchestra and get back. That just wastes time, you know. It's a great experience, but it wastes those few days. You know, I couldn't, I felt like I couldn't afford any time to waste. I couldn't afford half an hour off. I felt like that last year. I felt I had to do every available minute I could stay awake was the minute I should be working. Um, so yeah, that was tough. But you know, it's paid off and it's been, a, I've had a great year of it and it's been good for me, but it was hard. When you're working like that, are you still following that schedule, though, of, you know, like with the kids in the morning and the evening, taking a break in the afternoon? Yeah, I think so. I, I'll probably get to about, you know, two o'clock and I'll stop. I'll have something to eat. Yeah. And then by that point, the kids will be out of school, get them back, you know, and it's dinner time. And then, you know, I'll be, I'll, I'll, I can work till I can probably do seven till 10 or 11 at night um, after that. Yeah, it's great though because it, just imagine if you didn't have those kids, <laughs> you, you, <laughs> yeah. you'd feel like you had no reason to stop, right? I know, and I'm, I'm, but my trouble is, I think that I kind of I call it the kind of curse of aspiration that I really aspire to be this superhuman thing, composer thing, and I just can't kick it. And you know, sometimes it makes your life miserable because you you know you, you just cannot stop the aspirational. I can't stop that motivation. I'm completely driven, right? And I think that. Anyone that I know that gets anywhere has to be completely driven. And I kind of feel I'm not as driven as a lot of people that I know who have no, who have no commitments, who just absolutely drive themselves to, to get that big thing. And I kind of feel that's how it works. That's, that's, that's the people that get to those exalted positions of being the big movie composers are the guys that just will not, this will not take no for an answer and just go at it like a bullet a gate. I think, I don't think there's no way around it. I think there's anything worth having is worth working for. And it's, I don't know. I, I can't see a way around that either. I think you have to absolutely devote your existence to it in some, it's, it, at some point to get to where you want to be. I, I think some people may not be as driven or motivated maybe as I am, or maybe people, some people have driven more than that. I just, in, the, in the kind of where I, am, where I am with that is that thing where I feel like I have to drive myself to try to get to where I want to be. Mm. 
Do you have any sort of, um, I don't know, friends or mentors or communities that you're a part of where you, I know, talk about these things? Or Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Like in, in LA, there's a thing called the Society of the Composers and Lyricists. So you do tend up to be, end up in a room with lots of composers who mind about the same things lots of times. <laughs> you know, you hear that a lot. Um, I'm a BAFTA member because I got um, one of the scores that I got uh, did a, uh, in the UK um, called Viva Pinata. I uh, got nominated for a BAFTA in like 2007. So I joined BAFTA and I'm in BAFTA, BAFTA LA over here. So they do have things you kind of get together. But I tend to be in a minority in BAFTA because there's a lot of actors, producers, you know, all the kind of movie people. I'm like a, a composer. So usually there's not that many people there that, that are music writers. Um, and I have friend, other friends that write music uh, for, for games especially. Um, so, you know, if you, I know if you, I know if you meet the guys too. So, you know, we all have that same thing where, you know, the people you're working for don't want to pay the money you're asking for and your agents fight with them and all that stuff that, that everybody goes through, you know, and the director's hard to deal with and all that stuff, you know. So, yeah, I guess you have that. Um, I don't think I really have a mentor. I obviously look up to people like, I mean, John Williams is my complete hero, so I look up to him and I kind of, his Harry Potter scores and all these other scores, I like my textbooks that I kind of, you know, listen to every day and try to understand what he's doing so I can be better at what I do. But I don't think I really have, really have a mentor that I know. It's more like people that I aspire to be like, I guess. Man, that's like, I mean, we've talked about a lot of different sort of networking events that you could go to, but I imagine a BAFTA one is <laughs> that's like kind of levelled up there in the in the networking event stakes. I, know, I guess, I know, but I think, you know, you'll, I, think you'll, I think living in LA, especially you learn that networking is easily half the battle, like having the talents only 50%, the other 50% is definitely the networking thing. Like it's so crucial. And I think I didn't realize that till I got here. It, it just is the, you know, in some respects, maybe it's more important. You have to do that thing where you have to get out there and meet people. And when you're really busy, you don't, you don't go anywhere, right? So you don't meet anybody. So I'm fortunate that I've been around the games industry for a long time that people do know who I am, but it's still hard, you know. To get into movies, you really need to meet the director. Like, like it's almost like nobody else in that in that regime is is important apart from the director or maybe a producer, high up producer. They're the guys that make the decisions. Getting to a director is like, I don't know, I don't know how you do it. It's it's next to impossible unless you bump into me in like Tesco or whatever, you know, the Ralphs over here or Vons, and by mistake, you you know what I mean. It's that thing where, or you know someone that knows someone. I guess the good thing about being in LA is like I live in Agora Hills, um, which is I guess twenty miles out of LA to the west, and you know having kids in school. You know, a fifth of the population here works in the entertainment industry. So there's a good chance you're going to bump into some one of your kids' mates' dads is going to be, <laughs> you know, that's the way where you meet that person in that no-pressure situation where you're not trying to sell yourself. You meet them at someone's party or some, or some, kid, or some school gathering. You get chatting and you, you get along. And, you know, it, it, that, could be, that could be way more important than you trying to kind of cold call a director or something like that, which you can't even get to. Um, you know, that, that's the good thing about being... That's why I think that to, to be serious about movies, you have to be in LA, really. I think, right, once you're established, you could be in Timbuktu. But I think to, to get into it, you have to be here to take that meeting in 10 minutes' time at Starbucks down the road, if they're available. You know, yeah, that's that thing you have to be able to do. So, yeah. it's that, you know, being here is super important if you want to do that thing. I think as a games guy, you could probably be anywhere. But as I say, as a, for a movie guy, an unknown like me, you have to be here, really. Matt, it's it's such a fascinating story, and it and it kind of feels like you know, despite how far you've come, that it's just kicking off. Like that, that you know, your freelance stage of this is is just getting started. 
Yeah, I think it is. I mean, it's been it's gone from strength to strength, I guess, in the last sort of four or five years, which is bizarre, really. I don't know how I've managed it. I've been I've been super lucky so far. By the way, that that Mario game is on our Christmas list. You'll love that. That is an awesome game, and the team that I work with that are super fantastic guys. It's the Ubisoft in Milan, Ubisoft in Paris. They were the two teams that did it, and like. The creative director, Davide Soliani, we are super great friends now. Like, you know, we, you speak to, each, to these guys for every day for two years, so you just become best mates, you know what I mean? So he's really, really passionate about making games. You know, it's the first time Nintendo have let anybody really touch Mario outside of their own company, really. So it was all, we were all like, you know, scared to break it. I was super scared to break the music. He was scared to break the, to break Mario. So it's a real, a real kind of passionate gamers game that we kind of put our hearts into it, so... I hope you like it. It's, it's, it's got great reviews. It's done really well. So we're, we're super happy with it. That's, that's, that's an interesting thing, though, that whole, um, you know, you're, you're working there in your studio, in, in your house, but you are part of a team. Yeah, I guess, you know, I guess that's part of it. And, you know, you have to get along right. I mean, I, you know, I meet a lot of composers who are very, who are very kind of adamant. They're not going to do this. They're not going to do that. They're the composer and, and they, they call the shots. And I'm like, that isn't what it's like. You are a service industry. You are someone that serves somebody else. They hire you to do a job and you better do what they want or they're going to find somebody else to do it. And there'll be a guy stood right behind you right now who will do it what they want. You can't afford to, to fight about these things. It's a stupid way to be. If you want to write your music, go and write a symphony, go and write a pop song that's all yours and you can do what you like and no one, it's up to you then. But the minute you hire yourself out to somebody else, you have to understand that, you know, you have to do what they want or they're just going to find somebody else that does. I mean, for God's sake, like to get to touch Mario as a video games guy, I mean, <laughs> he's the best, he's the biggest video games character in the world, right? I, I still can't believe it. My son had one, walked past my room and say, looking at me doing like cinematic sequences on this. He said, Dad, you look, you, can you believe you're looking at Mario writing, writing music for me? I said, I can't believe it. A lot of times, <laughs> you know, a lot of times I'd be in tears, like going, I can't, I'm sat here going, writing the tune for, Mario, for bloody Mario, for God's sake. How did that happen? <laughs> I don't know how it happened, you know. Yeah. How old are your kids? Uh, my son's 15, my daughter's 11. Wow. So dad's got a cool job. Well, I must admit, I think I've given him a bit of street cred over the, <laughs> over the years. I mean, how often, how often, can, how often can, you, can your kids say that your dad gets you street cred at school? Like, that doesn't happen normally, right? <laughs> so. Now, I always do this thing where I ask for three facts about yourself, make two true, one a lie, and let me figure out the lie. So what have you got for me? I had a lot of trouble about thinking about this. So um, I was once uh, trapped under the curtain at a Pal concert. I was once in a band that was the opening act for the Care Bears and I once was trapped in a lift with the lead singer of Saxon, Biff Byford. Okay, you opened for the Care Bears, you were trapped in a lift with, who was it? The lead singer of Saxon, a metal band uh, called Biff Byford, it's his name. Biff Byford, and you were trapped under a curtain... At a Powell concert. At a Powell concert. And was that because you were a musician at the Powell concert? Uh, loosely speaking. Or, or were you a Carol Decker stalker? Well, I, don't, I, think, I can't tell you the details. You have to guess. Do you know, first of all, thank you for bringing the word Powell into, into this game. <laughs> um, because there's an, there's, I'm going to have to go and listen to Powell now. There's something I've not heard for a long time. Yeah. I, I like to think that a guy who wanted to be in a metal band opened for the Care Bears. I like to think that's true. Trapped in a lift, trapped under a curtain, trapped under a lift. Tra- uh, I want you to, I want to power to be true. So I'm going to say Biff Byford one is the lie. That's right. Well done. I can't believe you got that. That's yes! what. 
Do you know, part of me was thinking that's got to be true because I've never heard of Biff Byford. Right. So that's probably true. But I so wanted to pal to be true. Right. Why were you trapped under a curtain at Tapal? It was I was in a band at the time called Zoot and the Roots, who were like a, a soul funk band based in York, and I played trumpet for them. I've been in there for a lot quite a lot of years. We did like did like some big stuff like uh Saturday Night Live TV shows and stuff like that. So, you know, they're a well-known band at the time. And we got uh, some band pulled out. We were asked to support Tapau at Whitley Bay Ice Rink. Uh, and uh, so we did our support set. And I was still, and I, I really fancied Carol Decker over the years. You know, when I was back then, I thought she was gorgeous. So I was, and I never saw her for the entirety. I thought, I've got to get a glimpse of her before she goes on stage. So I stood at the back <laughs> at, the, at the ramp going up to, to kind of catch her. She goes at the ramp, right? And this guy said, you're right, everybody on stage, come on, get the curtain. I was like, I started, he said, no, son, come on, off you go. I said, I'm not, I'm not part of the crew. She said, no, no, don't give me that, off you go. She pushed me on stage, right? So there's this massive curtain covered right across the front of the stage. It must be like 30 feet tall, massive black thick thing. And all the guys stood, stood in like a line across the front of the stage, like maybe six of us. When they start, you run with the curtain to the far, to the opposite side and the curtain falls off, right? And they're, and they're revealed, right? That's how you do it. So I was like, you know, what am I doing on stage, you know? <laughs> You know, I'm not even part of the bloody road crumb, part of the bloody band that played the gig, you know, the, the support band. I, I thought, well, anyway, so I can't be that. I thought, I'll do it. I can't complain now. I look like a, like a div, you know. So anyway, so he said, when I say run, run. So he's behind me. So I was last, I was, I think I was, the, was it, no, I was the first, I was the first person at the far end. So I had to run not very far. So I heard him shout run and I ran with a curtain in my hand, like this massive, big, thick thing. And I ran straight into the side field, which is the speakers at the side. Kind of had a bit of a, you know, moment. <laughs> Fell off the edge of the stage. And all the curtain that the lads behind me pushing me all came down on top of me, right? So <laughs> this curtain was like, you know, it's massive. It's like, it's, I don't know how wide it is. It's really heavy. It's like 30 feet tall. And I was just underneath it. Like, it took me like 20 minutes to get out from underneath it. I just couldn't, I, I started to get slightly claustrophobic because it's like pitch black. I could hear to power playing. And I just couldn't find the edge of it. I was like, on my hands and knees, trying to get out from under the bloody curtain. So it took me ages. To, I was getting quite panicky by the end of it. And I finally got out and I was like, you know, <laughs> you know, hyperventilating. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> so that's how it happened. Yes. And, I, and, and we had to leave. So I, we had to leave really early. So I missed Carol Deccan completely. Never saw her. Apart from, <laughs> apart from the distance. And that was it. I had to go. Bye. <laughs> that was my one matter power experience. Amazing. Amazing. What a story. <laughs> now, if you could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance, what would that be? <laughs> always always say yes always you know if people ask you to write a kind of music you've got no idea how to write it just say yep yeah, that's my favorite kind of music i write it every day i love it to death go home and google it and find out about it there's people of like in la you don't want to have any any degree of of like uh maybe they don't want to hear that they don't want to hear i'm i'm, I'm not sure if that they want to hear that they'll just get somebody else to do it just go yep yeah, that's what i do all the time i'm in fantastic can't wait just say yes. Grant, thank you so much. Uh, go to beingfreelance.com and there will be links through to uh, everything that Grant is up to. And while you're there, check out, of course, all of the other guests. Hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and also check out the vlog that I'm doing on YouTube as well. But yeah, Grant, thank you so much. And I can't wait to hear what and see what you do next. Can't wait to play that game. And all the best being freelance. Well, thank you very much for asking me to, to come on the show. I'm honoured. Thank you very much. <laughs> 